Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis, and this week we're going to take an in-depth look at a true crime from St. Augustine, and it's still, to this day, an unsolved murder. It's the mysterious death of Athalia Ponzel Lindsley. On January 23rd, 1974, Lindsley was murdered by somebody wielding a machete, an unknown assailant. She was 56 years old at the time, and her body was found crumpled on the front steps of her home in St. Augustine, lying in a pool of her own blood. So Lindsley was no ordinary woman. She almost married a Kennedy. And she was a supermodel of sorts, even though they didn't exist back in the 70s. And her murder to this day remains a mystery. Joining me now, author Elizabeth Randall. She wrote the book, Murder in St. Augustine, The Mysterious Death of Athalia Ponzel Lindsley. Thanks for joining me. How are you? Thanks, Karen. I'm fine. Wonderful to speak with you. You also wrote a book, Haunted St. Augustine and St. John's County, which we can get into in another podcast because apparently you can't live in St. Augustine without encountering some sort of a ghost. <laughs> That's what I hear. So you are a floating teacher. Are you a ghost? <laughs> no, I, uh, that was the first book I wrote. And um, that was a, a floating teacher is a teacher without a classroom, but it does look like a a ghost story, but it's not. It's just a book on education. All right. Well, I wanted to talk to you about this unsolved murder, which I think was actually solved, but the jury didn't understand or something happened. This is the strangest Uh story. And it's about a woman whose name is in your title of your book, Athalia Ponzel Lindsley. And I find her really interesting before we get into her death. Uh She was born in Toledo to a wealthy family, right? In Ohio. Well, yes, but she was actually born in Cuba. Or the Isle of Pines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what happened was her mother went home. She was from Toledo, maybe to give birth to her and then, you know, came back. But Athalia's earliest years were on the Isle of Pines. Which is an island possession of Cuba. Now, it was in the possession of the United States when she was born, but they were kind of thrown out of there when... Cuba took over. Her dad was a very prominent person there. He brought electricity to the island. He was an entrepreneur. He was 10 years older than her mother. And they loved it there. And she lived there, gosh, I think she was 10 or 12, I think. And then they moved to Jacksonville. Florida. So she must have stuck out like a sore thumb because here's this beautiful blonde Right. Mm-hmm. She was very statuesque. She was a model and a chorus line dancer. Yeah. So she had long legs. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about her background. I was also enthralled with Athalia for that reason and for others, which I'll explain in a minute. But she was a very independent woman. And I think she got that from her mother, who was a teacher, very intelligent, belonged to a lot of literary societies. And probably encouraged that in her. In fact, her mother tried to prevent Cuba taking over the Isle of Pines. She spoke before the Senate, you know, trying to keep it in American hands. And so I think she got her independence from her mother. And because her dad died when she was about 18, I think. 
And uh, she married very young, right out of high school, and that marriage didn't last long. But she could have and been then, first lady. Because, right, yes. I forgot. Joseph she, Kennedy. Yes, yes Joseph P. That's right. He yeah. was the oldest, and he was the one that his father, Joseph Sr., was grooming to be president. And then he dies uh-huh. in an airplane crash or explosion in World War II. So then Joe Kennedy uh-huh. looks at... Jack Kennedy and says, tag, you're it, because Teddy certainly couldn't do it. But that was so intriguing that she was engaged to him. Yeah, she I heard she used to keep a big picture of him in a prominent place in her home. Somebody had told me that. So, yeah, that was probably her big love. But I believe she was married before she ever met him and divorced. Okay, wow. And and yeah, she was married three times. And then she. After she divorced her, I guess it was her high school sweetheart or something, she moved to New York and her sister followed her and she became a Powers model, which is a very big deal. I mean, not everyone could do that. And she was very popular. She was a game show hostess. Bud Collier's Uh, television show, Winner Take All, I don't even know. That had to be. Yeah. 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 And probably the 50s, I yeah, guess. Before my time. And, uh, yeah. And um, she was in a Broadway show. She appeared in magazines, you know, ads. And and she was dating, you know, she, Joseph Kennedy. And there were other men, too, after he died. Uh, she was engaged a few times. I know her dad died years ago, but I think her mom got sick. And she moved back to Jacksonville to take care of her mom. And they lived in this big mansion in Riverview. And then for some reason, they sold it. And that's when she moved to St. Augustine. And like her mom, she was a go-getter. Apparently, she unsuccessfully ran for state senator. And she had plans to run for a seat on the St. John's County, Florida Commission. And then she married... This would be her yeah, third she, or fourth husband, the St. Augustine, the former mayor of St. Augustine, James Jinks Winsley. Yeah. Never had any children, although I think she was close to her niece. And um, yeah, she had political ambitions. She definitely did. And that probably led to her downfall. You know, initially I wanted to call this book uh, Women Who Lived Like Men. Oh, I love because, it. <laughs> because Athalia... She was very outspoken. She was very opinionated. She was a proud conservative, loved animals, you know, very intelligent, invented a household gadget. Oh, what uh, was it? I don't remember. Oh, Lord. But, yeah, I'll have to look that up. The paper she was. Who knows? Yeah. She really, really had a lot going for her. But this was 1970s. Right. And moving to St. Augustine, St. Augustine is a deeply Southern town. They called her a Yankee, even though she lived most of her life in Jacksonville. Yeah, well, she went to New York for a while, probably why. So Mm -hmm. she marries this former mayor, James Jinx Lindsley. He was a successful real estate agent. Mm -hmm. She married him four months prior to her murder. Yeah, it was. In fact, she married him shortly after her mom finally died. I mean, she's portrayed as this brazen, hussy, show, washed-up showgirl oh dear. in St. Augustine. That's how they saw her. Well, she all, they also but, resided in different homes, right? That was weird, even though they were married. Well, yeah, they did. But 
she took care of her mother, her invalid mother, for years. Mm-hmm. And she was really, she had a very kind heart. She saved animals. And um, she just was portrayed very unfairly, probably because she approached people in those days the way a man would, you know, was saying what she felt and championing her own causes. So, yeah, they got married shortly after her mom died, and they did live in separate houses. She had a big white mansion on Marine Street, swanky part of town, and the house is still there. It's privately That's right on the river, right? Well, Matanzas River? It used to have a beautiful view of Matanza Bay, but they built houses, and you can't even see it now. I know. But um, Jinx lived on Anastasia Island in a kind of modest, small house. I've seen it. It was nothing fancy. And I think Jinx was having some money problems because he served on the county commission for years and years and years. And then a couple years before he met Athalia, he lost his seat. And then he went into real estate. And I think he was kind of scrambling. So, And I don't think Athalia was really wealthy either. They wanted to sell her house. But that was the 1970s, and she couldn't sell it. Oh, so wow. she wanted to keep it up. She had her animals there. She had all her mom's possessions there. So I think it was kind of a temporary thing. And Jinx's deceased wife, Lillian, they used to live in separate houses, oh. too. Huh. I don't know. He might have been a guy who thought some distance was good for a relationship. But they... <laughs> But they were together a lot. I mean, they had a relationship that had its ups and downs, no doubt about it. But they were often very affectionate. And they, you know, after she died, he was like, oh, she was the love of my life. Well, they were only married for four months before she was hacked to death. Uh, You talk about her loving to take care of animals, some strays that were barking a lot. Yeah. And her neighbor was the St. John's County manager, Alan G. Stanford. And he was a neighbor of Lindsley and of another guy named McCormick. Locke McCormick, apparently a witness to the murder. Did you interview him? I could not find Locke McCormick. And I tried. I know he lives in Jacksonville, but he does not want to talk about any of this. And he's very hard to reach. I did talk to one of his best childhood friends. And because she used to play in the house where the murder occurred when she was a kid, because there was one, uh, her and Locke had a friend who lived there. And she said he was like the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. But she thinks he was the only eyewitness yeah. to the murder. And she thinks that his family told him to shut the hell up oh. because they were because they were afraid. Well, it was before her death that she and the Stanford neighbor, who was the county manager. uh, He was the city manager. City manager, excuse me. So Mm -hmm. she apparently, like you said, she was outspoken and she would go to the, so it would be a city Uh commission board, because it's saying county commission board, to complain about his new raise that he got on the grounds that he wasn't even certified as an engineer in the state. He wasn't. And was signing documents as a city engineer. Yeah. And he got a huge, I mean, they gave him, people who'd worked there for years would get these tiny little raises and they gave him like a $20,000 raise. I mean, they really wanted him there for reasons that are beyond me because he really was terrible at his job. I got the commission meeting 
CDs. They had all the old meetings on CD. And he did like really crazy things like paving roads with like two inches of asphalt, okaying uh, people to dump things in a neighborhood. Um, he just didn't, roads were flooding. I mean, Athalia wasn't the only one who was concerned about his job performance. Yeah, well, so apparently she, a- she complained, and one of the commissioners said, I'm aware you are a neighbor of the Stanfords and that y'all have had some problems. But she said, that's true, my life has been threatened. And that was right before that's she was right. killed. She said he threatened her life, and she was waving goodbye to some friends from Jacksonville who had been uh, visiting and he pulled up in his car and he beckoned her over to the car and he said you better stop what you're doing or I'm gonna fix you <gasps> or something like that and um she told her husband and he went and talked to Alan about it Alan was up on the roof when Jinx went to confront him probably on purpose because Jinx was known to have a hot temper and she told someone else, too, a friend of Jinx's, that Alan had threatened her. I believe he did. Um, in fact, he called up one of Athalia's friends, Nancy Powell, who wrote the Sunset in St. Augustine book. And Nancy Powell testified to this at the trial that he called her up and wanted to get dirt on Athalia. You know, he wanted to know how many times she had been married. He wanted to know anything bad about her. And he said, I'm going to send her back where she came from and nancy said you mean jacksonville and he goes no where she came from so so we're speaking with the author of murder in saint augustine the mysterious death of athalia ponzo lindsley and elizabeth let's get to the nuts and bolts of what happened because you were telling me that she was kind to animals and didn't she have some barking dogs that upset stanford as a neighbor she did, but I find it hard to believe that they were as bad as her neighbors said. Because remember, she was nursing her invalid mother. If the dogs were as noisy as they say, wouldn't that have disturbed her mother? You would think. Plus, they, plus they lived on a very busy street. I mean, there was it was near a hospital. I mean, there's traffic constantly on that street. So it's not like it was some quiet refuge by any means was it a pretty big property yeah well the house they weren't super close together and you know there are ways to approach this kind of thing apparently you know they were very they weren't neighborly they ended up taking her to court i think three days before her mom died or or after her mom died about the dogs and they did yeah and they didn't offer any condolences i mean they just they said she was a nightmare you know, but I think they kind of set the tone. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, so let's talk about what happened and how mm. she was killed. She was hacked to death. She was struck nine times by a uh. machete on her hand, arm, and in the head. One of her fingers was severed, and she was almost decapitated. And she was, I guess, outside on the porch. And the only thing, it wasn't a robbery because the only thing missing was a blue jay that was in a cage that was all smashed up. Is that true? Yeah. Well, the blue jay wasn't in a cage. It was one of her animals that she had rescued, and she took it outdoors every day for some exercise. It had a broken wing or something. And so it was like hopping along behind her when she was attacked. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> and it killed the blue jay too. Yeah. Oh God. Wow. Yeah. So this thing was brutal. So we had talked earlier about Locke, Locke McCormick. He said that he saw the murder go down. No, he didn't see it go. Well, maybe he did. What he saw was he heard something. He went out, he was watching TV and he went, he heard something. He went outside and he saw a guy, the back of a guy in a white dress shirt with gray hair. He said, Mr. Stanford is hitting Ms. Ponzel, because that was her name before she got married. But he never saw the guy's face. Yeah, so it was like 6.10 at night, and he looked out his window and toward the Lindsley house, and he saw a man raising and lowering his arms uh as if striking something. And so he ran outside and witnessed a white middle-aged man wearing a white dress Uh shirt, dark dress pants, walking away from the front steps of the Lindsley home and leaving her crumpled body at the bottom of the steps. So he sprinted back to the house and he told his grandmother. So how old was he at the time? He was in the community college, so he was probably about 18 or 19. He said, Mr. Stanford is hitting Mrs. Lindsley. They called the police right after, like two minutes later, and it was apparent that they couldn't resuscitate her because it was brutal. The medical examiner said that she was struck nine times by the machete and that uh, it was just, you know, too much damage. Yeah, her arm was also practically severed, but... Mercifully, I think she died quickly because the machete hit the artery in your neck. Okay, jugular. And, yeah, and it just, the blood just sprayed up the side of the wall. There's, you know, pictures of it. And um, they said she probably died within, you know, a few seconds. Yeah, they said despite her grievous wounds, the initial investigation reported no signs of a struggle. So she must have been surprised. Yeah, she was looking at her mail. When it, she's probably looking down at her mail when it happened. She had walked. To, oh, but here's something else. Someone rang her doorbell. Uh. Or no, they think someone rang her doorbell and then hid while she went outside with the bird to get the mail and got her on the way back. So the doorbell ringing was why she came outside. They were lying in wait. Yes. Wow. You know why? Well... Do you want to get into what happened that day with Alan Stanford? Yes. He got a visit from the Board of Engineers, uh, an official board, about him signing his name as the professional engineer when he wasn't, because he had failed the engineering test. <gasps> and that that was contingent. His job was contingent upon him passing that test. And he failed it, but he was going to take it again but they said you know you shouldn't be signing these documents you're in violation of several statutes yeah and um you know this is a serious thing and he was steaming because he was you know Athalia had been showing up at you know commission meetings like five times she showed up yeah yeah you know he had already threatened her life and so a lot of people think this was the last straw Plus, the machete he had, he had borrowed from the county, and he never returned it. <gasps> no. He never returned it. They said, he said he did, but there's no record of him ever doing that, and the guy in charge said he never received it, and it wasn't there. Why did they have a machete? I mean, was St. Augustine overgrown with marsh at yeah. the time? Oh. 
Well, everyone had machetes. Jinx Lindsley had a machete to cut away the undergrowth. Okay. And people use that, you know, in their yard a lot for scrub. And The other thing is, is that not only was this machete obviously linked to him, but then this mechanic named Dewey Lee called the sheriff, Garrett, to say, look, I found, I think I found the murder weapon in a marsh a few miles from yeah, the mercy. He, he act, yeah, he actually called Eddie Leitner, I think his name was. He was friends with Eddie. He was Eddie was one of the investigators of the murder. And um, he had kind of sent Dewey out to look for evidence because, you know, they didn't have the machete. They didn't have anything. Well, he hit a lot the mother of people load. Think, yeah, a lot of people think Dewey discovering, it was like in the, a, a Near a dump. Oh. Well, he discovered the machete, um, a pair of black dress pants, a white shirt, um, some blonde hair stuck to the machete, and all of it covered in blood. Yeah, he found um, the machete, a wristwatch, which was later linked a wristwatch, back right. to Stanford. Mm-hmm. The dark blue pants, the white shirt, the belt, and a purple tie wrapped in a pink towel. And then. Yeah, all of that was linked to Stanford. All yeah. of it. There were people who said uh, his wife came in and bought these pants (laughs) and they showed him the receipt. Oh, Lord. Oh, my God. And also, I think the wristwatch found in the marsh was definitively linked to him because the serial uh numbers were Uh identified by the jeweler that he bought it. Right. And he wanted that watch back after uh, the trial was (laughs) over, but... I, it, it, it ended up getting thrown out. <laughs> so. Oh, my God. So Well, that's interesting. So he ends up being arrested on February 22nd, 1974. And they let uh-huh. him out on $20,000 bond. I thought that was interesting. When does a murder suspect get released on bond? Not only that, but his church, Trinity Episcopal, uh, started raising money for his defense. Oh. And Athalia was vilified in the St. Augustine record and, um, you know, just as there was one headline, like obnoxious victim had no shortage of possible killers. My God. <laughs> what an yeah, impudent her headline. Husband, yeah. Her husband Jinx said, well, you know, you're, uh, helping the wolf and, you know, forgetting about the lamb or something like that. But you have to understand Alan Stanford was a, you know, they had paid a lot of money to bring him in for this position. He was an usher at Trinity Episcopal. He was father, of husband. He was widely respected. Yeah, he said, I'm and, totally innocent of this thing, and I will put a lot of trust in the Lord. Yeah, he felt it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Huh. So was her husband, Jinx, ever considered a suspect? Oh, yeah, he really was. And there are some people who still think, he did it, but based on my research, there's no way he could have, because he and Ophelia went to Jacksonville that day. They had a nice, you know, time out together. They went in his car because her old Cadillac wasn't, you know, very roadworthy. So he dropped her off at the real estate office at 5:30, and they were gonna. She was gonna drop off some groceries and uh, come back to his house that night. And they're going to spend the night together at his place. And it was five 30. So he left, he went to a drug store. He got home about six Oh five. I think it was. 
And how on earth, dropping her off at 5.30 after a pleasant day together, and witnesses saw him at the drugstore, could he have killed her and then made it to Anastasia Island by 6.05? So the time element was in Jinx's favor. Plus, he passed a polygraph test. Oh, interesting. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm almost, I'm positive he didn't do it. Okay, so let's rule him out. But so the assistant mm-hmm. state attorney, his name was Richard Watson, prosecuted Stanford, and he asserted that the murder was vengeance for their squabbles. This, the fact that he wasn't mm-hmm. a licensed engineer and he was signing documents as a licensed engineer and he was being paid. And that mm-hmm. the wristwatch found in the marsh was definitely linked to him. And the rest of And the shirt and trousers apparently was bought by Stanford's wife, Patricia, in 1973. But Mm -hmm. what did the defense argue? I know they had five witnesses that saw Stanford at his office, they said, on January 23rd between 6 and 7 p.m. But that's sketchy because some people said they saw his car there. They didn't see him. And other people said they didn't see his car. And one of his most vocal supporters was the guy that he had uh, allowed to live on county property for free for some reason it, oh, you know gotcha. someone who said he wanted to help a little Stanford. quid pro quo it's possible i mean there are as many accounts that his car wasn't there as there are that it was he also so. said that he had returned to his office to double-check permits that were going to be mailed and that he needed to study for his engineering registration. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Here's the thing, though. They found shoes in the marsh when they discovered the evidence. So if when he got home, if they had only looked down at his feet, they might have solved the crime right there because he could not have had shoes on. Right. Well, he had to have some other clothing on. He didn't show up naked, so he must. Yeah, have... he took the he took the dirty laundry out of the garage <sighs> and changed into that. Oh, is that what his wife said? No, but that's what the evidence okay. looked like because they, you know, they kept the laundry. You know, the diaper. They had a baby. They had a four, two-year-old or something, Annette. And, uh, you know, a diaper was found with all that stuff, too. So he he went through the dirty laundry to find some new clothes. Well, his parents testified that the shirt and the trousers that Mm -hmm. were found in the marsh could have been stolen Mm -hmm. during the police search and planted so that Dewey Lee could find them. Yeah, right. Well, I talked to Dominic Nicholas, one of the St. Augustine investigators of the crime, And he was there when the house was searched. And he, you know, this guy is a straight arrow, you know, on the force all his life. He said, of course, that didn't happen. And it does sound far-fetched. Yeah. But there is some speculation that the evidence was planted that I I don't know. It is odd that Dewey Lee just came across it. Yeah, in a marsh, yeah. No, but he was looking for it. He had looked previously in the woods nearby. Um, and he was also looking for his daughter, too, who had run away. And he was just checking out of the way places. So I don't know about that. But I tend to think, you know, this was on Riberia Street where the evidence was found near the dump. I think, you know, it's very likely Alan 
through it there. And well, we'll never know. And critics accuse the police of botching the investigation and tainting the evidence, sort of like a precursor to the OJ trial. And the lone witness, Locke McCormick, said then, apparently when he testified, that he later realized the man he saw striking Lindsley had, quote, more hair and broader shoulders than the 150-pound Stanford. That's a problem. Yeah, well, I don't think it, they tried to throw Dewey Lee under the bus, and there's no way it was Dewey Lee. Dewey Lee was working. It, you know, he had eyewitnesses seeing him working, and he was a mechanic. He worked under cars. He didn't wear a white dress shirt to work. That was absurd. Apparently, they were just trying to throw him under the bus. Yeah, the defense attorney said, look, neither James Lindsley or Dewey Lee nor anyone else were investigated properly. They're, you know, they're looking for reasonable doubt, which they got. And, yeah. You see, Stanford had a, re- he lucked out. He had a really good lawyer, ah. Walter Arnold. This guy was a whiz kid. He was in his 60s when the trial happened, and he took it because it interested him. He was from Jacksonville, I think, at the time. So all he had to do was create reasonable doubt, and he was really, really good at his job. He wrote a book, actually, uh, about all of his most interesting trials called Not Guilty, and he wrote about the Athalia Ponsel-Winsley trial then. The attorney, his name was um, Edward Booth, right? That was his partner. Okay. Walter Arnold was the, really the head of it. Well, he Edward a, did a lot of the cross-examination, but Walter was the brains. Got so. it. Well, Edward Booth launched a closing argument attack. He said that investigators were hell-bent on getting Mr. Stanford to the detriment of justice, and he maintained that you know other people weren't looked at either. But the jury got the case, and they were deliberating February 3rd. It's actually like one year after the murder. So they began deliberating, yeah. and how long did it take them to come up with their decision? I don't remember, but I think it was a few hours. Two and a half hours. Yeah. They acquitted Alan Stanford. The prosecutors were in total disbelief. Yeah, they were shocked. They were totally amazed that this jury could go through all that evidence in just two and a half hours and come up with a decision, an acquittal. It was very unfair. And... um Alan Stanford dropped to his knees and thanked God. Oh. And uh, he fully expected to get back his job as the city manager. And it didn't turn out that way for him, though. Oh, he didn't get it back. Yeah. He was let go? He was a pariah after that. Oh. He, he left town. He had to. I have not talked to one person in St. Augustine who didn't believe he was guilty. Not huh. one person. Everyone, after that trial, and that trial was really heavily attended, they gave out tickets because the courtroom was packed every day. So everyone knew he did it, but they let him off anyway. Why? Because they liked, well, a lot of it had to do with it being 1970, and everyone said, well, she was just a terrible woman, and she tried to ruin his career. And a lot of people said she got what was coming to her. A lot of people said that. In fact, that's the reason I ended up writing about this, because I was so outraged. I wrote a chapter about this in my Haunted St. Augustine book, and when I went for book talks, this murder was all anyone wanted to talk about. 
after I wrote the book, I got huge crowds of people from St. Augustine coming in for book talks because this is still a very big deal there. And there are still people alive who remember it. And she was just very much disliked because they didn't think she was ladylike. Mm-hmm. And they said she got what was coming to her. But even still, when they all realized that Alan was, in fact, guilty, they'd been raising money for his defense at his church. He didn't get his job back and he had to leave town because he was a pariah. And he went to Miami for a while and ended up in uh, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And that's where he and Patty, his wife, were buried. So and he had a career as a marine engineer in South Carolina. He retired. Uh, Patty died from lung cancer. And he remarried someone 13 years younger, lived in a big house, was an usher at an Episcopal church. And they wrote a glowing obituary for him in the the port. uh, What is it called? The the South Carolina newspaper. I forget the name of the newspaper. And uh, South Carolina Bugle. No. So, you know, what's so interesting is that they just run her up the flagpole and she could have been the first lady. She was engaged to Joseph Kennedy Jr. I mean, she would have been a good first lady, too. She would have had a lot of causes. Yes. And she was beautiful. Mm -hmm. So the Panama City News Herald incredulously remarked after they came back with an acquittal, which, by the way, then Jeopardy would have attached. They couldn't have tried him again and try to you know, mm-hmm. get a different verdict. But mm-hmm. during that time, the eight men and four women jurors elected a foreman, ate a meal brought to them, and considered the verdict. And boom, they came back with not guilty. And the sheriff, Dudley Garrett, he proclaimed, yes, I think he did it. I signed the complaint against him, and I don't concur with the jury. And he said if he had been on the jury, he would have explained the evidence to them so they could understand how damning it was. Dudley Garrett was a a great sheriff from all accounts. I researched him. He shut down, you know, gambling. He cleaned that city up and he worked his butt off on this case. He got, he interviewed everybody. He didn't leave a stone unturned. So he was really upset when they came because he knew Alan had done it. And he was really upset when they came back with a not guilty verdict. Well, the even weirder thing is, Elizabeth Randall, author, November 3rd, 1974, Lindsley's friend and neighbor, Frances Bemis, went out for a walk and was murdered. And what did she do for a living? She was a whiz kid in New York City. She was a public relations person for major department stores astounding career, this woman, brilliant woman, an intellectual, and she had a social conscience. She marched with uh, the civil rights protesters before the passage of the Civil Rights Act. She was a wonderful, wonderful woman. And she thought Alan did it, too. And she well, apparently, said that uh, pardon she, me, before you get to what happened to her, she alluded to having certain mm-hmm. information about mm-hmm. the murder, about mm-hmm. Alan. Yeah, she said someone had told her something about, you know, that they could prove it with Alan. But she was very vague about that. I don't think she had all the information. But she did tell that to a few people. In fact, I I met her niece and um, nephew-in-law after I wrote the book. Lovely couple. They live in St. Augustine. And she had told her niece that, too. So. 
Well, she went out for a walk and she never returned. What mm-hmm. happened? I'm not sure. The easiest solution is, oh, you know, Alan did her in. But I tend to think not, although, because it was kind of a random murder. Her head was bashed in with a piece of concrete. And then whoever did it tried to set her body on fire. Oh. And that doesn't sound like Alan's. Mo and there was a lot of <laughs> there was a lot of crime in St. Augustine right then. Although it's a weird coincidence that yes. two women on Marine Street were killed, but the police don't think Alan did it. They think it was a random crime. The body was found the next day in a vacant lot at the corner of Bridge mm-hmm. and Main, with her skull crushed, mm-hmm. as you said. And you know she was a professional newspaper writer amongst other professions, mm-hmm. and she was gathering material for a book on Lindsley's murder. No, she wasn't. That's not true. She she was helping Nancy Powell, okay. who was writing the book. Nancy Powell would send her her notes. Francis's papers were stored at Smith College. So I went through all her papers. And there was a manuscript there called Murder in Marine Street, on Marine Street. But she wasn't writing it. Nancy Powell was writing it. And she was giving her advice. Okay. Well, like Lindsley's murder, Bemis's murder has never been solved. So do you think that they had their man and he got away? Or do you think that there may be somebody else that might have killed him? I tend to say, I mean, it would be more interesting to say that Alan killed them both. But I tend to think somebody else killed uh, Francis. In fact, I called up her neighbor uh, who was still alive at the time I was writing the book. She was very old. And she could barely talk. But she said that she thought it was a guy who was renting a room or something from... Well, Frances owned a kind of boarding house, I think it was. And she said she thought it was one of the renters who killed Frances. Huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, no one knows. But I would tend to think it wasn't Alan. I mean, he was scared. He was a coward. You know, I don't think he would have risked a, a second murder with the trial looming. Right. Yeah, that is strange, though. And for such a small mm-hmm. little town, small little mm-hmm. old St. Augustine to have two murders right there is so weird in the 70s. There, was a, there were another two murders, though. There were two homeless people who were killed. They were squatting somewhere, and they they were beaten up so badly they died. So there was some bad vibe going on in that right in that area around that period of time. So possibly a serial Um, killer. Well, it's unlikely that Athalia was the victim of a serial killer because who kills someone in broad daylight uh, with a machete, (laughs) you know, on her front step? Yeah, that's personal. You know, there are two, you know, from what I've read, there are two types of motivations for crime. One is rage. And that was a rage killing, if I ever heard of one. And the other is someone, you know, who's very organized about it. And that was not an organized crime. You know, it couldn't have been a serial killer. It was too random. All right. Well, we have to definitely plug your book again. You must get it. It's on Amazon. Uh, the author, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Randall, thank you for helping me out on this podcast. And the, the book is oh, Mur- sure. Murder in St. Augustine, The Mysterious Death of Athalia Ponzo Lindsley. True crime mm-hmm. book. And we may never know, but I think we know who done it. 
Yeah, we don't know about the other murder, but I'm pretty, you know, everyone in St. Augustine, if you bring this up and they like to talk about it, uh, they'll say Alan did it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Karen. Take care. You too. Bye. I can't help but compare that jury with O.J. Simpson's jury and that there was some sort of jury nullification going on there where they heard all the evidence and they went, I don't think so. He's not guilty. Juries are funny. They can be very unpredictable. You never know what they're going to do. And maybe they were bought off. Maybe there was a bribe. Oh, by the way, Elizabeth got back to me with the gadget that Athalia invented. And I have the copy of the U.S. patent. It's for a handle grip for cleaning devices. (laughs) This invention relates to improvements in handle grips for cleaning devices for scrubbing pots and pans and specifically refers to an improved method of a handle with an automatic grip for holding specially prepared pads of steel wall. Well, there you have it. That wraps up Full Rigor. Thanks so much for joining me. Check me out on Instagram at Full Rigor Podcast. And don't forget to download and subscribe. Until next time. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.